Hello, and welcome to New Books in Global Ethics and Politics. I'm John McMahon, visiting assistant professor of political science at Beloit College, and one of your hosts for the channel. Also a former fellow of the Center for Global Ethics and Politics at the Ralph Bunch Institute at the CUNY Graduate Center, one of the sponsors of the channel. Today I'm speaking with Banu Bargu, Associate Professor of Politics at the New School for Social Research, about her new book, Starve and Immolate, The Politics of Human Weapons, out from Columbia University Press in 2014, and out in paperback in 2016. Bargu's book explores the weaponization of life and extreme forms of political resistance by studying the death-fast movement in Turkey, which arose in response to proposed prison reforms by the Turkish state. The book strikingly weaves together political theory, critical theory, and ethnography of the movement in order to think through this new modality of protest and resistance and to gain access to lived experience of those involved in the protests and in the resistance and speak back to, as Bargu will say in the interview, the kind of classic canonical thinkers of political theory and critical theory. Works, too, as she says, tell two sides of the same story. On the one hand, explore the self-narration and self-understanding of the participants in the movement, and also to analyze and investigate the discourses of state power. In doing so, Bargu rethinks the categories of both sovereignty and resistance, understanding sovereignty and its relationship with biopower, and resistance in its relation to necropower, and in response to the changing configurations and reconfigurations of sovereign power. Ultimately, the book provides a critical analysis of self-inflicted death as a means of political resistance and inquires into the conditions of possibility in which this emerges as a tactic of political resistance. Hope you enjoy the interview and hope that it spurs you to go out and read this really, really incredibly rich book, the kind of weaving together of political theory and ethnography, something that's um, something that kind of has to be read to fully be appreciated and understood. In the meantime, uh, enjoy this interview with Banu Bargu. I'm now speaking with Banu Bargu, Associate Professor of Politics at the New School for Social Research, author of Starve and Immolate, The Politics of Human Weapons, out from Columbia University Press in 2014 and new in paperback in the last few months. So, Banu, thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Global Ethics and Politics. Thank you for having me. So I was hoping to start by kind of asking you the standard first New Books Network question, and that is to tell us a little bit about your academic background. Okay, I um, I was born and raised in Istanbul, Turkey, and uh, I um, did my undergraduate studies uh, there at Boğaziçi University. Uh, also, uh, my initial master's there in the political science and international relations department. And then I uh, came to um, do a graduate study at Cornell University in the government department. And um, I got my PhD from there, um, studying with uh, Susan Book Morris and um, focusing on political theory. And having, after completing my PhD, I took up the job at the new school um, as an assistant professor of politics, and I've been there for the last um, 10 years. This is my 10th year. Great. Well, congratulations. Happy 10-year anniversary. <laughs> Thank you. And so I was then maybe hoping you could begin by kind of relating what you call in the preface to the book, the informal beginning of the research. Uh kind of the funeral march of a death faster in Istanbul. And how did that experience provoke you to then go on to do this work and theorize, as you say, the way that such individuals, uh, quote, appear curiously archaic or dangerously prefigurative of a different politics? Um, y- yes, John. I mean, perhaps I should give just a little bit of background in terms of when I started my doctoral study. Sure, of course. I, um, which, which is sort of the background to the anecdote about the funeral that opens the book. Um, and that is, um, you know, I started my uh, PhD at Cornell in August 2000, fall 2000. And very soon after I started, in October of the same year, um, the political prisoners in Turkey started a hunger strike. So my doctoral study was immediately sort of overlapping um, with the unfolding of this protest. And, uh, of course, we all know just a year later 
9-11 happened. So it seemed to me that my period of study uh, coincided with a period in uh, Turkish history and also in American history and world history, one could say, uh, in which uh, the use of the what I call the weaponization of life or the you know extreme uh, forms of resistance with one's body uh, became very 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 much a burning question of the times. At the same time, the idea of uh, sovereignty sort of re-erupted uh, in academic discourse and public discourse as an important concept that had been neglected, especially in the uh, previous few decades uh, from study in, in political theory in particular. So even though I had started uh, my uh, PhD with the hopes of uh, focusing on um, uh, critical theory uh, in particular, uh, it, it felt to me that I had to really um, uh, address these burning questions that affected me personally because I was um, coming out of a, a Turkish context, but also um, as part of um, you know the U.S. context. So um, that's sort of the background. So that was the first year of my graduate school. And the uh, summer when I went back to Istanbul, um, you know, by a chain of uh, contingent sort of uh, coincidences and circumstances, um, I ended up uh, meeting with some people and attending sort of a birthday celebration where someone in attendance received um, a call about um, a hunger striker who had been um, on hunger strike for a very long time since the previous fall uh, outside of prison uh, had had passed away. So, um, and that there was a sort of funeral gathering in front of the house uh, in which she had fasted. So a few people um, decided to go there and I went along and that was my first encounter on a personal level um, with uh, the struggle that had been unfolding and that I, I had been following um, uh, from the news as much as I could and from a distance um, uh, from the U.S. So, so that was sort of my first uh, encounter. And I didn't know at the time this was going to be first my uh, dissertation project and then sort of make its way into a uh, uh, book form. Um, um, but having encountered that and having had the, that experience, it really shook me. And I felt like I, I really couldn't write on anything else. Um, I had to think it through. I was particularly shaken by the um, existential form of struggle that I saw, um, the commitment um, of individuals to starve themselves to death and to, to do this in the name of leftist ideals, which also seemed very unconventional or, or counterintuitive because this kind of protest was not necessarily a very strong um, part of the leftist repertoire. Um, so, so that's how it all got started. Thank you. And maybe perhaps before we go further, I might ask you to give a little bit, um, of a genealogy or background for the audience of the political and carceral changes in Turkey that the death fasters were responding to. And then perhaps also a little bit about the political context of the movements the death fasters were associated with. Sure. Um, so the uh, prison system in Turkey used to be um, organized largely um, in the form of collective wards, where prisoners were often housed together uh, in, in large numbers, depending on the prison, where, which province the prison was located, of course, you know, the prisons in Istanbul and Ankara and the big cities being more crowded – 
Um, but also, you know, ranging from anywhere from like 30 people in one ward to 100 people in one ward. So really big sort of collective units. And um, another very important feature of Turkish prisons was a more or less strict separation between um, those considered to be ordinary prisoners um, and political prisoners. And so political prisoners being, you know, housed collectively in wards, sometimes divided according to their affiliations, um, if they were in large enough numbers, um, they had a life behind bars. They governed themselves um, by uh, communes. They organized their daily lives. They allocated um, food. They... Um, allocated medicine, clothes, etc. So they had a very strong collective organization um, in prison. Um, but at the same time, there was a lot of um, uh, complaint on part of state authorities uh, regarding the state of prisons, especially the fact that they were overcrowded, you know, not hygienic, uh, you know, um, really mediocre and, 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 and low conditions of sort of quality of life, let's say. Um, but of course, uh, there was also a big complaint because this kind of collective life in prison was very much conducive of a radical politics. And uh, the prisoners were organized, they engaged in protests, they have a long history of struggle uh, for everything ranging from like basic rights, for example, rights of visitation, uh, you know, seeing lawyers, having access to newspapers, having access to personal letters, books, etc., to uh, broader issues. Um, so, they had they had that history of radical protests behind prisons, which um, was also one of the reasons why, uh, in addition to the overcrowding and the and the uh, less than ideal conditions in prisons, there was this um, big push to uh, reform, let's say with quotation marks, um, the prisons in Turkey. And I should also mention the Turkey. Um, among, uh, you know, European countries has, um, the largest population of political prisoners. Um, and of course, this also marked its prison system as, um, uh, quite unique and different, um, and related to the fact that the political prisoners were kept, uh, more or less separate from, um, uh, those convicted or detained for um, other, you know, what what are referred to as more ordinary crimes. Um, uh, I don't know how how good of a label that is, but anyway. So um, so basically, when the state announced um, its initiative to actually transform prisons and to introduce uh, cellular prisons or uh, something like the equivalent of the super maximum security prisons in the U.S., high security prisons, um, inst- which would have cells that would house one to three uh, prisoners in each cell in place of the collective uh, wards that housed from, you know, 30 to 100 prisoners. This was met with a great resistance by the prisoners. Um, they organized themselves and started the hunger strike. They launched the hunger strike. And um, uh, in fact, uh, you know, uh, when the government didn't respond positively to their hunger strike, they basically organized the hunger strikers into teams of death fasters and uh, concatenated the launch of these teams of death fasters according to expected times of death, managing in the meantime a very slow and arduous process of of self-destruction, of self-starvation by uh, controlling their intake of sugar and salt and water and um, uh, in some cases vitamins um, in order to uh, respond or to be able to control the 
process of dying um, uh, based on the response, uh, the potential response from the government. But what happened instead was a huge security operation into prisons. Uh, um, uh, it was, uh, you know, by a, a very big security force, um, the Turkish state uh, recaptured, as it were, its prisons, all the prisons in which there were hunger strikers and death fasters, and this numbered 20 across the country. Um, this happened in December uh, of the same year of 2000, December 19, it was almost um, uh, two and a half months into the hunger strike. So uh, the state officials were calculating that the hunger strikers were nearing, um, nearing death by this point. And ironically, the name of the operation was uh, Return to Life. Mm. Um uh, and the, the operation itself led to uh, the deaths of tens of prisoners um, and uh, two security guards. So as a result, 32 people lost their lives. Um, but beyond that very simple contrast of the name of the operation and the death toll, uh, the idea was to rescue the prisoners from themselves, so to, to return them to life because of the self-destructive nature of the protest that they were engaged in. So what happened was that the, the hunger strikers were transferred into these high-security prisons, which are called the F-types in Turkey, um, which were then uh, put into, uh, hastily put into operation, some of them still under construction partially. And um, this was the beginning of the consolidation of the new penal regime um, which the state uh, had had the aim of uh, the aim of putting into uh, practice since 1991, basically, because the high security prisons were first stipulated by the 1991 law for the struggle against terrorism. But because they had met with so much resistance, both from the prisoners and outside of prisons, from civil society that they hadn't really been put into practice. And this operation, the Operation Return to Life, became sort of the um, moment in which uh, the prisoners on hunger strike were transferred uh, into these high-security prisons and, and, and the new penal regime was launched, so to speak. Um, for a while after that, participation uh, in the death fast, which was, you know, the hunger strike was transformed in a fast unto death, um, it continued, uh, violence outside of prisons by the supporters of the prisoners escalated. Um, but in the May of the following year, in 2001, which is right before my encounter uh, with the hunger strikers, um, most of the people on hunger strike who had approached a very critical condition were released from prison either by the provincial suspen provisional suspension of their sentences or sometimes by presidential pardon um, uh, as a way of um, dispersing the movement, I suppose. And um, uh, some of them quit the hunger strike. Some of them, uh, because they were, um, uh, they experienced um non-consensual medical intervention or what we call artificial or forced feeding. Uh, they were made to quit. Um, and, but still others continued uh, to um, uphold the hunger strike and um, uh, the process of self-starvation outside of prisons in um, resistance houses, what they called resistance houses in these radical enclave neighborhoods that have been traditionally the strongholds of the radical left. So um, basically uh, a year later, uh, most of the organizations that participated in the hunger strike and the death fast called it off. Uh, this was in 2002. Um, but um, the struggle uh, was still continued until 2007 by um, two organizations, 
um, and finally called off in January 2007, right after actually the assassination of the Armenian journalist Hrant Dink. Um, and by the time it was called off, it claimed uh, 122 deaths, most of which were self-induced. So um, it was a very, very uh, long, arduous, violent, and bleak protest um, so, so that's sort of the basic, uh, chronology, the basic timeline. And, um, you had also asked me about, um, the who, uh, you know, of, of the participants. And, um, it should be said that most of the participants, uh, of the hunger strike and the, uh, death fast, and also, um, you know, some engaged in acts of self-immolation. And there were uh, some suicide attacks outside of prison by the supporters of the same organizations. Um, these belong to um, outlawed, illegal Marxist organizations in Turkey, political parties uh, that are quite uh, marginal, uh, but nonetheless have an important presence on the extra-parliamentary leftist scene in Turkey, or I should say had. Um, because this is no longer really the case. But at the time uh, of the protests, and especially in the 1990s, uh, these organizations uh, did command a following and um, uh, uh, were in large part um, in a struggle uh, with the Turkish state in order to transform its constitutional order. And um, most of the people in prison... Some of them were not convicted yet, um, but uh, undergoing trial. Some of them were convicted. Um, they had convictions based on membership uh, to these um, violent and, and um, uh, outlawed uh, radical leftist parties. So um, the, the movement actually involved about a dozen of these organizations um, uh, of varying different sizes, um, you know, at, which participated at one point or another um, in the hunger strike, which made it a collective uh, protest that involved at some point up to 1,500 political prisoners. Thank you. That's incredibly helpful. And as we kind of turn to get into what you're doing in the book itself, I mean, to me, I was reading it, one of the more impressive, ultimately, aspects of it to me was the way that you brought together political theory and ethnography. And so I was thinking about what kind of challenges and potentialities, and I think it seems to me both of those, um, does bringing together political theory and ethnography open up, either kind of uh, generally, methodologically, or more specifically for the work you're doing in this book? Uh, thank you, John. That's an excellent question. Um, you know, as someone trained in political theory, um, my uh, education uh, equipped me to uh, to read and to interpret. But my object of interpretation was mainly confined to texts um, uh, and especially uh, canonical texts in the history of political thought, in the history of Western political thought. So when I was faced with the challenge of trying to think through and theorize this new modality of protest, the self-destructive form of protest, um, I felt like what I was equipped to do was not necessarily adequate or sufficient to, to grapple with what I wanted to, with what I needed to study. And, um, uh, you know, the, the kinds of actors that I was dealing with, the kinds of um, experiences and the sites, uh, the site of the prison, the site of the cell, um, or these radical enclave neighborhoods, you know, the experience, the practices of hunger striking, um, um, forms of prison resistance. Um, you know, I could only really get at capture what was happening in these in these sites in these practices by having some kind of access to the actual lived experience of those people who either performed 
or who were in some ways involved or affected by these kinds of practices. So um, that led me uh, to um, eth- to do ethnographic research, to do field work. Um, and, you know, I've been very, very interested in, in trying to combine um, uh, ethnography, in-depth interviews, archival research, uh, oral histories with uh, the more, let's say, standard forms of um, uh, political theorization um, in order to incorporate the voices of those in the margins, the voices of those in protest, uh, you know, to, to witness uh, their experiences, to uh, record their discourses that will otherwise vanish because they will never really make it into a traditional text of political theory. So um, my interest was also to uh, put together um, the the voices of these people, their political practices, their self-understanding of what they were doing, um, in a way, in dialogue with the um, uh, thinkers of politics, um, whether this is uh, Marx or Foucault, um, in order to, you know, access the history of the present um, in a more uh, egalitarian way, let's say. Um, because these are the people who don't have the kind of epistemic uh, privilege or standing to have their voices count as, uh, you know, voices of political theorists. So by putting them together, by putting them in conversation, um, my intention was to take their practices seriously, to study them, to, to try to think through them um, uh, critically and um, uh, theoretically, but also to have them speak back to um, the, the very important thinkers that um, theorize the present. And um, in that endeavor, Foucault was very important but also Agamben and Mende and Marx and um, a whole range of contemporary thinkers who've tried to um, address uh, some of the problems of the present that the book also speaks to. It seems to me that another kind of aspect of that is the way that you you write about how you wanted to theorize the the agency and the aspirations and contradictions and implications of the political actions of this modality of political resistance without, as you write, condemning or condoning them. So kind of, first of all, why was that particular commitment important for you in the book? And second, was that something that was difficult to do? Uh, Let me start from the second question. It was difficult to do um, because, um, you know, dealing with violence is, is never easy. And um, the literatures that were uh, that became very prominent after, uh, especially 9/11, dealt with this kind of protest in mainly two, three ways. Uh, one way was to um, uh, you know, write this protest back into some kind of an, you know, individual um, experience, uh, you know, an individual psychology. So um, the people who carried out these kinds of protests were considered to act out of personal despair. Uh, You know, they were considered to be brainwashed, pathological, suicidal, this and that. And that seemed to me to be inadequate and and not really getting at, first, the conditions of possibility of this kind of protest, of the emergence of this kind of protest. And second, the collective nature uh, in which I was witnessing and the organized and the, you know, willed nature of this kind of protest. So um, that didn't seem satisfactory to me. And then another very uh, dominant tendency was to simply, conf- you know, to uh, subsume these kinds of protests under 
discourses of uh, terrorism um, and religious fanaticism. And this seemed to me to actually occlude more than it revealed. Um, this had become a very, very contested terrain of scholarship. And the, um, uh, you know, move to explain everything by reference to religion or Muslim culture, etc., didn't really correspond to the reality that I was faced with, which was largely secular groups uh, utilizing this um, uh, tactic uh, in a collective form uh, that had nothing to do with their religious orientation. So um, I felt like the, the, the explanations at hand were not really satisfactory. And, this, and another thing that a lot of scholars who study violence face is this um, uh, immediate sort of uh, expectation for you to, um, uh, you know, take a position either in support or in um, uh, opposition to uh, the object of your study. And to me, the, the whole point was to be able to show why these people would do such a thing. And at the same time, it's disastrous consequences. So in order to do that, I was trying to really open up a space for critical theory to take distance both from the available apparatuses, conceptual apparatuses, uh, that defined the discussions, the public debates, and the, the some of the academic scholarship, um, but also taking distance from the actors involved in the process um, while taking them seriously. So uh, one of the ways I tried to get at this was to uh, try to tell the same, was by trying to tell the same story twice, as it were, um, both from the perspective of those who were participants of the hunger strike, um, their self-representation, their self-narrations, their, their attempts to give meaning to what they were doing, and to put that together with um, discourses uh, by state officials of those in power, sort of the narrative of power. So to, to put those two ways of telling the same story together with the hope that the combination will produce a truth that is irreducible to the um, perspective and the discourse of either uh, part alone. So to try to really convey the complexity um, of the forces um, in, in question and the, the agencies in question um, and some of the... Um, uh, problems that um, these agents, both on part of the state, uh, but also mainly on part of the prisoners, faced um, because of the um, historical, the, the traditional treatment, let's say, of political prisoners uh, in Turkey and the kinds of um, repertoires of protest that they had available to them. Uh, at the time. So um, that distanciation, let's say, from, you know, taking a side um, was for me something very difficult to negotiate, um, but at the same time, really, really crucial, I think, if I were to be truthful to, you know, the stories that I was trying to collect, while also maintaining my um, voice as a critical thinker that subscribed to neither point of view that I was dealing with. So, right, and it seems to me that the idea of telling the same story twice is connected to one of the other kind of central theoretical claims of the book, and that is your theorization of these concepts of biopoliticization of sovereignty and necropoliticization of resistance and being able to think those two terms together. So maybe I could start by asking you to kind of walk us through what you mean by those concepts, but then eventually kind of get to thinking about how you put them together in the book. Uh, sure. 
Um, so, you know, having uh, given you a basic overview of the kinds of um, uh, approaches that were available to me to study this uh, phenomenon, uh, you know, the, the religious fanaticism, terrorism discourse on the one hand and the more individual psychologization uh, tendency on the other, I was really looking for um, a, a different space. And for me, uh, the kind of the nature of these protests, the the self-inflicted, the the painful existential, sacrificial, potentially, uh, you know, irreversibly damaging um, form of protest, seemed to be really um, uh, out of measure with the kinds of issues that the protest was. Um, uh, you know, oppo- developing in opposition to. So, okay, prison conditions, they, they're very important, but did it really warrant such a radical protest? Or on the other hand, my question was, the Turkish state uh, had an incredibly organized and securitized response to this relatively marginal protest, like why was this overreaction? I, I felt like there was more at stake there that, that um, um, you know, than what was warranted from the proclamations of, of uh, people on both sides. And I, and I started to see um, uh, this as a, the symptom of a deeper problem, let's say, um, also considering that this form of protest was really emerging as a repertoire around the world. People in comparable situations in prisons, in detention centers, um, in uh, spaces of confinement, in border zones, um, you know, resorted increasingly to um, the, the self-destructive use of their body to make a political intervention. And what I wanted to do then was to understand how self-inflicted death or self-harm can become a means of resistance. What are the conditions of possibility of that? What are the political conditions, social conditions, uh, structural conditions that um, uh, allow that, that enable that? Um, and make it a possibility that then people resort to. And this brought me to um, uh, understand um, the nature of the power regime. And Foucault was incredibly helpful in my thinking because um, the, the basic insight that I learned from him is that every resistance um, that develops in response to a power relation and from within a power relation um, carries to a great extent the the mark, the stamp of the nature of that power relation. So if we want to understand this kind of protest, what it means, what it does, how it does what it does, we need to understand it in reference to the power regime that it is responding to, that it is growing out of, that it is um, reacting against. So this led me to um, really interrogate the transformations of um, uh, the power regime, uh, you know, in the specific context of the Turkish state, but um, also in a more generalizable sort of uh, fashion. And there, um, you know, the, the uh, basic gesture in discourses of biopolitics that are largely inspired by Foucault's uh, contributions uh, had the tendency to say, well, okay, first we had sovereignty, we had absolute forms of sovereignty, and then we had democratic forms of sovereignty, but um, in the last couple of centuries, what we've been witnessing is first the emergence of a new form of power called disciplinary power, which Foucault depicts brilliantly in his Discipline and Punish, um, but then also the emergence of a, a, a more collective form of uh, biopower, 
um, what we can call governmentality. And the basic contrast that was posited between sovereignty and bio, biopower or governmentality, let's say, was that sovereignty was a power that um, uh, manifested itself as a command of life and death versus um, uh, governmentality uh, manifested itself more as a, you know, securitized form of management of life. So the contrast on the one hand of power of life and death and power over life um, had led a lot of thinkers to say that basically sovereignty was in a process of disappearance, of, uh, you know, that it was receding, that it was being supplanted by these uh, new forms of uh, disciplinary and governmental power. To me, this seemed incorrect. And um, I uh, thought that instead what we are witnessing is a reconfiguration of sovereign power in a way that really um, holds on to the traditional um, instruments of sovereignty, but one that also combines them in, in very new ways uh, and configurations with techniques of biopolitical government. So I wanted to uh, conceptualize this new amalgamation, let's say, between these two different modalities of power uh, with the name, with the designation bio-sovereignty, because I thought that neither sovereignty nor biopolitics uh, was sufficient conceptually to address the very complex political formation um, that we were witnessing. Um, and the point that I wanted to make was that actually um, what I call the weaponization of life, uh, but to put it in a contrast with uh, bio-sovereignty, uh, the necropoliticization of resistance, by which I mean the more and more, uh, the greater reliance of resistance on uh, necropolitical methods on methods that um, used self-destruction as a technique um, uh, were related to one another and that this was sort of an outcome, a novel reaction to um, uh, biosovereignty and the formation of biosovereignty. Novel because the expectation, um, again, in uh, thinkers of biopolitics, was mainly to look at the um, increasing biopoliticization as a way that, if it generated resistance at all, was generative of a kind of resistance that was, um, you know, always seeking for um, greater welfare, better benefits, um, basically life-affirming struggle, sort of turning the government of life, um, you know, back upon itself in order to get better rights and welfare and recognition. What instead, what I want, what I wanted to show instead was that this formation also had this, uh, dark, let's say, underside that led to a refusal of an increasingly totalizing, uh, management of every aspect of life, most forcefully felt in the prison, of course. Um, and uh, leading to a kind of um, uh, refusal and a very bleak form of protest that I tried to conceptualize with the um, uh, idea of necro-resistance. So the point, basically, of the book is to look at, you know, beyond the specificity of the, of the case study, let's say, of the death-fast struggle in Turkey and Turkish prisons, to look at the dialectic between an increasing biopoliticization of sovereign power at the formation of a new amalgamation, um, which I call the biosovereign assemblage, and the necropoliticization of resistance uh, in response to this formation. You're careful to emphasize in kind of working through that dialectic that while the death fast is a political intervention, it's a political modality of resistance that, uh, that, that acts through the body, 
it's not reducible to corporeality as such. And so why is that distinction important for you? Well, that distinction is important because I want to emphasize that while this is this kind of protest is done with the body, through the body, to the body, it's not about the body. Uh, what is at stake is the meaning of life and different conceptions of how life should be lived. Now, um, the product, the kind of life that emerges out of the biosovereign management administration of, um, of uh, different aspects of life is one that these prisoners interpreted as um, non-political, as um, unjust. And what I want to show by pointing to the distinction between, um, uh, you know, the use of the body and what I call the weaponization of life was precisely uh, that at stake in this protest was um, a commentary on how to live one's life, um, what is the relationship of human life to justice, and, you know, how um, not wanting to um, continue uh, to uphold a life under conditions of injustice um, can appear as um, uh, a valid alternative uh, for those who want to resist. And so is this some of what you're getting at with the idea of political cosmology of this form of resistance or the idea of kind of a theologization of resistance or of leftist politics? Uh, yes. I mean, what I wanted to do also in studying this form of resistance is, you know, not just look at the conditions of possibility, the conditions of its emergence, but also some of the consequences that it had on the people who were engaged in this kind of protest. And um, what I saw there and what I tried to um, uh, theorize uh, was this increased centrality of something like martyrdom, which seems very, very foreign to um, the kind of, you know, worldview uh, that the participants of this hunger strike had uh, that was very secular, even atheistic, um, and, um, you know, very much this worldly. Um, and how, like, so I, I was struck by how engaging in this kind of protest, the death fast and being oriented towards, um, uh, this kind of struggle that pointed to, um, uh, you know, some kind of indefinite future where the victory of the revolution would, um, uh, be secured, uh, but definitely beyond the lifetime of the individual militants. You know, how this led to the emergence of a kind of cosmology of values that really valorized um, death, that valorized martyrdom in a way uh, that was very, very strange. And um, I considered this um, as a result of this kind of practice. Um, both as a necessary condition, I mean, you have to produce the rituals and the rites that enable communities to uh, sustain this form of struggle, but, uh, but also um, as consequences that once the struggle sort of uh, takes this direction and takes this dominant modality, uh, then it really uh, has significant repercussions on the way uh, left cultures are, are, uh, lived and, uh, the values that become dominant. So I wanted to problematize the growing centrality of martyrdom, um, for those who subscribe to a Marxist left. Um, and I tied it to the, um, increasing prevalence of this form of necropolitical forms of protest. 
Thank you. And now, so I don't want to take up too much of your time, but before we end the interview, I'd like to ask you the traditional closing question here on the New Books Network, and that is, uh, what are you currently working on? Um, I'm currently work. I've been, since completing the book, I've been working on um, various different uh, forms of um, uh, protest or struggle that depend on the use of the body in different contexts beyond Turkey, um, and, uh, you know, trying to think through uh, not just the self-destructive forms, but also uh, more affirmative forms. For example, voluntary human shielding, um, and uh, I'm currently working on a piece um, that uh, tries to interpret the lip-sewing practices of migrants and refugees in border zones and detention centers um, across the, uh, you know, across different um, borders, some in Europe, but also in Australia. So um, this is uh, a kind of continuing building on uh, the extensive case study that I conducted in Turkey, but also trying to think through these different uh, forms, uh, such as self-immolation in the case of the um, uh, Tunisian uh, fruit vendor, uh, Mohamed Bouazizi, or, um, you know, voluntary human shielding in the case of Rachel Corey, or the what I just mentioned, the um, uh, lip-sewing protests of migrants at the border between Greece and Macedonia, for example, um, to, to try to think through the implications of this form of protest um, and to rethink the body um, as a political instrument through these cases and by attending to uh, the specific meanings of form that of political form that are entailed by these forms of protest. So that's uh, sort of what I've been working on. And then I also have a different project that takes a very, very different direction. Um, uh, and that is a reconstruction of uh, Louis Althusser's thought um, uh, and his reconfiguration of materialist philosophy based on the posthumous writings that he published, uh, that, that were published, um, uh, that deal with uh, what he calls aleatory materialism. And uh, so that's sort of a, a very different project and a little bit of an escape, I should say, mm-hmm. from the violence and from this uh, um, very difficult uh, subject of study that is occupied, that has preoccupied me for the last decade. So, Right. Thank you so much, Banu, for coming on the podcast. It was, I learned an incredible amount from reading the book, and I imagine that our listeners now have learned, learned a lot as well. So thank you again for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great pleasure. 